Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring hosts Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here is Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 36, being recorded on Tuesday, July 12th, 2016. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as always, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason. Happy Amazon Prime Day. Happy Prime Day to you, Scott. Have you gotten any good deals today? I can't talk about it because episode 37, as you know, is going to be all about Amazon Prime Day. So we're just going to leave people hanging uh, about the whole day and what's been purchased and all the experiences and all the fun that's been had because we have a different treat for tonight. Uh, we've been doing a lot of interviews lately and, and talking to a wide variety of folks, but but some of our latest interviews, we've really focused in on brands. And we've talked to folks in apparel like VF Corp and Under Armour. We've talked to Ferrara Candy. Uh, and tonight we have a really special guest uh, from one of the largest CPG brands out there, Mondelez. So let's give a warm Jason and Scott welcome to Neil Ackerman to the Jason and Scott Show. Hey, thank you. I bought an Amazon Echo today. Ooh, yeah, that was uh, $50 off. I think, you know, you don't really, I've seen 10 and 15 and 20. I'd never seen a $50 off. So that's a, I think that was a prudent move. Thank you. I, I, I waited. I was up at literally 2.30 in the morning. I saw the deal go on. I just grabbed it. Uh, so my kids are going to be pretty excited. Awesome. And the next uh, next Amazon Prime Day, you can order stuff with your Echo and more Echoes with your Echo. It's uh, it's a, it's recursive, as we say in the computer yeah. world. You got it. <laughs> it's almost like some sort of flywheel of sales generation. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's funny because when I was at Amazon, my we were beta testers for what was then called Alexa. And we had it in our house for probably a year and a half, maybe longer. And I remember what it was like before it was the echo of today. Uh, we used to ask it lots of questions, and it would constantly say it doesn't know the answer to the question. Um, but uh, it's been a we're happy to welcome Echo or Alexa back to our home, and our kids are going to be pretty excited to have one that works. Nice. Coincidentally, awesome. the beta of uh, Alexa sounds exactly like what I do for a living. People just ask me questions and I go, I don't don't know know the answer. answer. (laughs) Totally. Oh, you should have told your secret. So, so Neil, excited to have you here. Um, What's your official title title at Mondelez? So I'm the director of uh, global e-commerce for Mondelez International. I focus on supply chain, data analytics, and technology innovation, as well as some strategy pieces here and there. Uh, around e-commerce and other kind of uh, technology monetization models. Uh, prior to that role, I was at Amazon for three to four years as the general manager of fulfillment by Amazon, focused on the global small and light program, uh, which launched a, a year and a half ago uh, globally. Um, and so I'm really excited to be on the show today and talk about whether it's Amazon, Mondelez, or any of the big brands we have and how we think about them, I'm here and, and happy to talk. Cool. And then how did you get into the, the wonderful world of, of digital and e-commerce? And do you have a technical background or are you more of an MBA type? How, how did you give us, take us back to the start of your career and how you got, got pulled into this, this fun space that we inhabit? So I like to say that I got very lucky in my life. I actually started out selling cigarettes, Marlboro cigarettes, out of a van in Albany, New York. And, was it down uh, by a river? <laughs> yes. And uh, <laughs> and I uh, and from there I moved up through Philip Morris companies. At that time, they owned Kraft Foods and a bunch of other brands. Um, I started doing a lot of technology work uh, related to the Salesforce. Uh, went on to get an MBA at the University of Richmond. Then I wanted to get into computers. So I got a computer science, master's of science in computer science uh, from UVA. 
uh, University of Virginia. Uh, then I completed a few executive uh, programs and graduated uh, at MIT uh, in 2009, I think, or 10, something like that. Anyway, so like 12 degrees, if I'm yeah, counting lots, right. Lots of degrees, lots of great schools, a um, lot of fun over the years. Uh, and then essentially, I had to make a decision. My wife and I have moved nine times, and we were either going to go to Boston and be a fellow at MIT in Sloan, or we were going to join Amazon. My wife was done with the education and working at the same time. I did all this while working at the same time, by the way. And I decided to move to Seattle. So with a uh, two kids and a newborn that was also only three weeks old, my wife has never been to Seattle. We got on a plane and moved there. So it was me, the wife, three kids in an apartment, living, working at Amazon. And um, after that, we got a house. We lived there for a while. And the rest is kind of history. Uh, the Amazon stories are amazing. And maybe we can talk about them later. I loved Amazon. Love everything about it. Uh, and um, Mondelez came calling. And I always wanted to go back to CPG. And the reason why is because I knew that the future of e-commerce was going to be fashion and food. And um, I'm not very fashionable, but I do like to eat. And so food was my thing. And I decided that if I can help solve the grocery problem and get e-commerce for grocery going, that would be like making history. And so I uh, decided that who's the best place to do that? Well, probably one of the world's largest snack companies is a great place to start. And that's where I started. So here I am. Still living in Seattle, by the way. Awesome. And you're, I think you're in Chicago. I'm in North Carolina. Jason, where are you? I am uh, home in Chicago today. So Neil and I are in the same city. Wow. I flew, I flew in an hour ago. Uh, so we have some big meetings tomorrow and then back to Seattle. Fun. Yeah. Pretty cool. So you want me to talk a little bit about Mondelez? Yeah, yeah. Tell us. Um, I have a pretty good understanding. I'm a CNBC junkie, so I think I have a pretty good understanding of how Mondelez came to be. But I, I, I would love to hear, and you mentioned Philip Morris. Um, I'd love to hear kind of the the background of where Mondelez came from and, and which brands are, are kind of inside of there. No problem. So for this is this is actually pretty important because uh, a lot of people don't know this. Um, so what happened was we're not. I'm not going to take the whole world through the whole history here. But basically, Philip Morris companies owned Kraft and Philip Morris USA and a bunch of others. And through a series of divestitures, acquisitions, etc., you can read the timelines on Wikipedia if you want. Essentially. Craft uh, came to be, became its own company, and then essentially Craft decided to split. Heinz uh, got engaged to Craft, and they married each other. It was left with Mondelez, which is a snack business. They didn't have a name, so they called it Mondelez. And uh, in 2012, Mondelez was formed. Mondelez is essentially the the old Nabisco. So the current Nabisco brands uh, and Cadbury. Now, there are lots of other billion-dollar brands uh, involved here, but essentially the Oreos, the Chips Ahoy, the Cadbury chocolate, the Trident gum, Velveeta, uh, breakfast biscuits, uh, Milka chocolate, that's, that's what makes up the bulk of this, uh, of this company. And so uh, it's one of the, the world's uh, largest snacking uh, companies. And that is essentially how it was born and what brands are involved in it. Uh, my role is global. So e-commerce is a, is a global business. You know, it's a flat world here. It's not the world of this is your region and this is our region. Anyone can buy anything at any time. And that is why Japanese Oreos are for sale on Amazon.com because anyone can buy anything at any time. It's a flat world. And so uh, we... What we try to do is, is you know, uh, reduce friction for consumers and maximize the value proposition of the grocery business online. And uh, that's the history of uh, Mondelez, and that's what we're trying to do right now. Um, and and we try. I think we do a pretty good job uh, at that. Um, we're uh, 
or growing significantly, as in our last earnings call, they use the word, our executive used the word explosive growth. Uh, that's a good uh, word to describe how well it's going. And uh, we expect it only to continue. We have power brands and we have people committed and understand e-commerce. So when you have that combination, you're going to be pretty successful. Very cool. The uh, I have an important Mondelez question. Uh, how many types of Oreos are there? Because every time I go to the grocery store, I, I discover like six new types of Oreos. Well, globally, there's uh, you're gonna you're gonna laugh. But globally, I I can't give you the exact number, but I can tell you that globally, there's probably more than a different more than 500 different flavors. Now, they're, they're all not out at the same time, obviously, because that would be a bit probably exciting, but also a bit ridiculous. Uh, but there are many flavors. My favorite flavor is um, I like peanut butter Oreo. Um, mm. I like blueberry pie. Um, I like uh, strawberry shortcake Oreo. Those are some of my favorites. I'm a, I've become uh, I like the mint ones. They're very good. They're kind of you know a little bit close to those Girl Scout cookie thin mints, but obviously much more reasonable in price. Yeah, and they have <laughs> the um, I like the cream of those. I like those. They have the uh, the thin version is really good. Those Oreo thins. Yeah. But um, you know those are those are some good ones. Uh, when it comes to Cadbury chocolate, I'm a bit of a chocolate crazy person, and um, I just love Cadbury and milk of chocolate. And uh, and Toblerone, and so since we own all three of them, I find myself walking around eating chocolate quite often. And I love the fruit medley that I can get in the UK of Cadbury with nuts and fruits. I think they're really good, and they sell online really well, also, which is kind of a plus. Wow! Isn't there some urban legend around those eggs they have in the UK, and they can't be sold here or something like because they have some? <laughs> Yeah, you know, I don't know what it is, but there's there's something in there that the U.S. FDA won't allow or something. Is, is that well, is there any I'm, truth to that stuff? <laughs> I don't know. I'm not an expert in the okay. uh, ingredient world, but but here's what I'll tell you: uh, e-commerce is a flat world. So if there's a third-party seller that chooses to sell something, uh, there's nothing I can possibly do to stop that. So um, I'm pretty sure if someone in the U.S. wanted to get a Cadbury egg from UK, they could probably figure out how to do it. Okay. I suspect Good you are right. I'm a big fan of the red velvet Oreos. Um, and then there's a seasonal Oreo that I really like, the pumpkin spice Oreo. Oh, yeah, pumpkin spice. That's a good one. But I have to tell you, yeah. I, I was not aware, and I'm now on a mission to prove how flat the world is. Uh, I wasn't aware there's wasabi Oreos. Yeah, go to um, – if you go to – if you can't read Japanese, and I don't know if you can, but if you can't – Go to Amazon.com and you'll see third-party sellers selling green tea, um, mango orange mixed flavor, strawberry raspberry, vanilla shake Oreos. Um, I know because in my office in Seattle, we have lots of them. We, um, we have a lot of people that love those particular flavors. Nice. Yeah. That sounds like the best job ever. Have you gained a lot of weight since you started at Mondays? I, yes, I have, actually. <laughs> I, 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 I tell people that you can't be in charge of e-commerce for Mondelez and not have a little belly. So, yes, I have gained weight, but um, every single time I eat one of the delicious cookies, and it doesn't have to be Oreo, it could be anything, um, I feel like it's worth it. You know, it's really good. I mean, if you ever had a birthday cake Oreo cookie, then you're missing out on the goodies of life. A birthday cake flavor Oreo is incredible. So there you go. Cool. Let's um, let's kick it off with an easy one. Uh, I say it sarcastically. Uh, and I think you've listened to the show a couple of times and you, you're probably aware we love to talk about Amazon. It's, it's hard to talk about anything in e-commerce and digital without bringing up the Amazon question. So yeah. um, you mentioned third-party sellers there. How do you guys think about Amazon? Are they a friend, a foe? Are they a friend of me? Um, how, how do they kind of, and is that even in your, your realm to think about? So uh, I do think about it, um, and of course, I will tell the audience that uh, whether you believe me or not, um, I'm not biased on the question. I'm very uh, data-driven type of person, 
And uh, if you get to know me, you'll know that. And so Amazon's a friend. And it's a friend for very strong uh, business reasons. Uh, one, you know, a fox knows many things, but a hedgehog, one important thing. And what that is, is that Amazon and Mondelez have in common that they're focused on the customer. So you have to give them what they want and always a little more. And so the reason why we find Amazon to be a friend is because we actually don't think Amazon does anything uh, in bad taste uh, for us or for customers, no pun intended. I think that what, what Amazon does is they focus on uh, increasing customer demand, which is what we want, and they give Mondelez the opportunity to do so in a very, very prescriptive way. For example, they, we work on selection. They consider selection one of their most important flywheel levers. Well, so do we. Now, we believe that we should bring relevant selection with the right pack sizes and assortment and even bring back popular selection. Even third party has popular selection. So this is great for us. Um, now, are there ways to improve it? Of course, we should always work on things like getting better bundles and better variety packs and lowering prices for customers and giving them uh, something special. Uh, and we want to make it seamless from retail to online. And, you know, Amazon with their another part of the flywheels content and they do that for us. We can build a plus content, they call it with lifestyle images and recipes, which we have now. And we can keep it as simple as main images and product descriptions. Uh, another part we love about Amazon is that they give us the opportunity to build trust. So, you know, we could respond to product reviews. Uh, we could encourage product reviews. We, we even learned uh, through product reviews that um, some of our lemon, uh, spring lemon Oreos were breaking a lot and we were able to adjust quickly. We learned from that sometimes when they ship Velveeta, the, the biscuits will crack. So not Velveeta cheese. We don't own macaroni cheese, but Velveeta, the, the biscuit, the breakfast biscuit. So we could uh, learn uh, about that. Uh, another one that Amazon pushes on is convenience. We think that the fact that they have subscribe and save and dash buttons and Amazon Pantry and uh, Fresh and Prime Now are all convenience factors and all things that we could participate in. And so overall, I would say they're a friend. Now, like any relationship, you know, it's complicated because we want, we, we have our supply chain that, that's worked a certain way. And uh, Amazon is uh, showing us and forcing us ways to do it differently. And the truth is, those ways are better. They, they drive efficiency for us, too. And when that drives efficiency, that lowers prices and gives selections to customers. So overall, um, I, I give it a pretty high score uh, when it comes to pricing selection convenience, which is what Amazon Flywheel is, uh, against our flywheel and Amazon has been a huge traffic driver for us. Uh, so I have good things to say. Now, remember, that's the U.S. And this, this of course, conversation is somewhat U.S., but I bet you there's people listening in other areas of the world. And, you know, Amazon grocery, frankly, isn't so big in other areas of the world. Uh, for example, in Europe, it's not anywhere close to the size of a Tesco. And so, you, you know, I, I would say this, don't bet against Bezos and, and believe that Amazon will continue to invest. So we continue to partner with Amazon in all places, including Europe. And we believe that they're going to continue to grow just like we believe Tesco and others will continue to grow. And so if we can provide um, a fabulous flywheel experience of our brands on any site that consumers choose to go to, then we will win. And that's what we try to do. And uh, overall, since I've been there the last seven months, it's not just me, but I have a, a frankly, an amazing team. And uh, this team has been successful at uh, growing well above the kegers of the grocery business. 
And um, so I feel pretty good about where we're headed and I feel good about our relationship with Amazon. Cool. And then on, you mentioned earlier, you know, if third party sellers are selling things, it's a flat world. So, so it doesn't seem like you go out there and police third parties and keep them from selling your products. Do, do you guys uh, sell outside of a wholesale relationship with Amazon or just, just through the traditional kind of what the slang I would use is one P kind of relationship? Yeah, we're one P we sell to retail. We don't have an FBA account. Uh, we don't sell marketplace. Uh, now with that said, uh, the third party sellers, you're right. We don't go around, uh, policing them. Um, what we, what we want is you want consumers to get fresh product, you know, not outdated in good condition, handled in a safe way. So everyone's happy and, and enjoying their, their, their snacks. And so, you know, we haven't had any problems, uh, from third parties and we do monitor it. And I'd say overall, uh, it's been a pretty good balance. So I don't really have a uh, real negative uh, reaction to it. It's there. Um, it's better to know that it's there and to have a position on it, which we do, which we monitor it and we watch it. But the truth is third party fills selection that uh, quite often we don't really have. Um, so if third party wants to sell a blueberry pie Oreo, because they happen to have bought it at another store and they're sort of retail arbitraging it, you know, then, then, then you know, and the consumer is going to buy it. There's nothing we can do about it. What, what I'd rather the consumer not pay seven or $8 for that pack and instead just pay it, pay $3 at target or Walmart. Yeah. But uh, obviously, you know, the consumers want what they want. If they're buying online, they want the convenience factor. They'll pay a little more and, the data says that they sure do, obviously. And to me, this is just an economic condition. The third-party sellers would not exist if people wouldn't pay for the higher prices of the Oreos or the other products, but mostly Oreos. And if, they, um, if they'll pay, then third-party sellers will continue to sell it. And so that's uh, economics 101. There's supply and there's demand. And so that, uh, that is managed, and yes, we watch it. To answer your second point, um, so I don't really – I don't see us right now getting into the FBA business. Um, we have a very good relationship with Amazon Retail. Uh, that's globally. And so um, I, don't, I don't see right now a case where that would be made. That, that could change at any time uh, if we wanted, again, to some type of unique selection but right now you're talking to uh, the bulk of the business and the bulk of the business is just, you know, double stuff, Oreos, regular Oreos, Chips Ahoy cookies. It's actually not all the special flavors. It's, that's not the bulk of the business. Got it. Interesting. And do you have, is there, do any of the Mondelez brands have like a counterfeit problem or quality problems or any of those kind of concerns with the third party sellers or has that been a non-issue? Um, we don't have a counterfeit problem um, that I know of. Uh, and, you know, I do buy, as I just explained earlier, a lot of the Japanese Oreos and uh, Oreos from UK. And because my office, I, I do a lot of test buys. Um, none of it's come back as a counterfeit. So nice. I think that's because the cookies, it doesn't economically, it probably doesn't make sense. I mean, for you, to, for, for a company to make a, a counterfeit cookie bakery factory, <laughs> That, that's pretty expensive, and you're selling the cookies at, let's say, 3 to $4, right? So it's just not a logical counterfeit mechanism. You'd have to have a very large factory. You'd have to bake it. You have to buy lots of cocoa and sugar, right? Um, and then you'd have to go through all that whole process of doing that. It probably is not a very good economic way to make money. You could probably do counterfeit better with other types of industries besides uh, uh, a cookie, but uh, as far as safety goes, yeah, safety and product quality is super, super important. I mean, people are eating this stuff. My children eat this stuff. And so, yeah, we spend a lot of time making sure and we watch our reviews and we read our reviews and we try to make sure we, we are always leveraging um, 
uh, and man- excuse me, managing is probably a better word, uh, the customer experience the best we can. So to date, no, I haven't uh, had any problems like that uh, with safety issues. And, you know, I can't predict the future, but as I sit here right now, um, I don't know of any. Nice. Uh, I will knock on some wood here on my end for you. Uh, the other problem that that uh, brands often rise when talking about partnering with someone like Amazon is the the channel conflict question. And obviously, like a lot of the traditional uh, wholesale partners of, of Mondelez, the Walmarts and Targets and Costcos of the world, probably would rather you you didn't do business with Amazon. Did, does that come up at all? Was that uh, a concern? Do you know when you first started selling on Amazon? Um, so uh, channel conflict is always something to be managed carefully. Um, so to be clear, um, I'm in global e-commerce and I don't have to do with, I don't really deal with the actual stores themselves, the physical stores of Walmart um, or Kroger or whoever uh, Costco was mentioned. Um but, you know, there is a big difference between Amazon and uh, Walmart and Costco. And that difference is selection. And so when we talk about channel conflict, I'm not really going to talk about the pricing part because, frankly, the elasticity isn't, uh, isn't the big issue. If someone's spending a quarter more or a dollar more, you're not talking about uh, very expensive purchasing here. So elasticity is more, more free. What we're really talking about is selection. And so if you're on Amazon, um, you not only have broader selection of our brands because they buy much more different variety of our brands, but they also have a lot of smaller brands on Amazon. And so these smaller brands um, that we don't own, but they compete with us, tend to uh, be what they call all, the, all other manufacturers and tend to be common on an Amazon or a Tmall, which is in China, for those who don't know, um, but less common on a on a Walmart.com, a Kroger.com, a Costco. And, and so what we find in the channel conflict is that Costco has club packs, and although we don't sell the club packs to Amazon um, because they're Costco's club packs, uh, third-party sellers simply buy at Costco and resell on Amazon. Or a company such as Box.com will buy their product at Costco uh, and then sell it on their own website to consumers. So uh, that's the kind of conflict that could exist. Now, if we decided to sell uh, club packs on Amazon, yes, I'm sure that that would cause uh, some kind of discrepancy. But remember um, that... There's other ways to do this. You can sell a different kind of assortment on Amazon. And if you go on Amazon today, you'll notice that we sell a three-pack or four-pack of Oreo Double Stuff. We all sell a three-pack variety of mint, golden, and chocolate thins in one pack. Uh, we sell an Oreo snack pack with Oreo regular, you know, b- uh, bags of Oreo, regular containers of Oreo. So we combine them in different bundles. And that's how we that's how we do it, and it's been just fine. We haven't had any complaints of channel conflict from any of our customers. We believe that we're upfront with them. We're honest. Uh, we we try to differentiate the packs appropriately, and we try to price fairly. And so, um, when you have people that are experienced in e-commerce, like the team is at Mondelez. And they also worked retail, like like myself. I was at CPG for a long time, so I did call on retailers, and I was a an account manager calling on grocery stores before the internet even took off. You understand this conflict, and you're able to uh, be ahead of it. And I think that's why we've been so successful with not having these problems. So we're growing significantly on e-commerce, and we're not having any uh, drummed up issues from our other channels. Uh, as a matter of fact, Walmart.com is a good partner of ours. Uh, we speak to them quite often, and uh, we, we just uh, love working with them also. So uh, we haven't had any of those types of trouble. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, no, that's great. How about um, you talked about 
elasticity of pricing and things. How how do you? A lot of times this comes up um, in two flavors. There's map pricing, so you know a lot of categories, as I'm sure you remember from your time in Amazon, have this kind yep. of minimum advertised pricing thing. I don't think it's that prevalent in CPG, but then another way pricing comes into play is you know you get this international portfolio and. You know, just like the other day, the Brexit event caused the pound to drop 30% versus the dollar. And um, it creates these, it kind of creates a pricing matrix nightmare to kind of figure all that out. What, what can yeah. you tell us about some of the, the pricing challenges you face kind of trying to make the world flat, as you say? Well, the, the good news is that um, we're, while I'm certainly not going to be commenting on Brexit, I will say that uh, pricing in itself uh, is a complicated topic to say the least. The The interesting thing in, in the CPG world is that the food is generally made close to the countries that they sell in. So what will happen in this case is if you're selling uh, Oreo in UK, that Oreo is not being made in uh, in Chicago okay, or in Portland. That Oreo is being made in Europe. And so uh, that's one thing where you have to be aware that uh, we're not going to be uh, driven by these all these pricing issues that would exist with currency fluctuations uh, so much because uh, it, the market bears what it bears and we're not really importing much. It's, it's really within the, the unions or regions that these products are being made. The other thing to notice is that these products also aren't very, very high price products. So if there is a swing, you're talking about a swing um, of not in the dollar ranges. You know, it's, it's in the dimes, nickels, pennies kind of thing. And so uh, that could happen uh, in many ways. And, and sometimes we could even do a price promotion on, on items to keep prices at a certain spot for a little while to see what happens. So, um, and we do that through vendor powered coupons, as you probably are aware of some of these types of uh, vehicles that exist online. Mm -hmm. So so overall, um, I'd say that I think the offline business is likely more impacted by pricing than the online business. And this is really because of a major factor, which is we could change the price in seconds online, whereas offline, it's not that easy. There are systems, there are cashiers, there are stores to touch. Online, you make one thing, it, it, it goes across the whole system in about you know, 10 seconds, and your price is different. We also have much greater control over the supply chain. The supply chain, um, we can ship it faster to warehouses, and those warehouses just ship direct to consumers or and sometimes to the stores. But either way, um, we have much greater control over the product that's allocated uh, for the internet. And so we could uh, manage it closely and we don't have to have as much inventory sitting around. So these are some advantages of an e-commerce platform. I mean, I remember back in the day when there was a price change for Kraft or Philip Morris, it could take two weeks to change prices around the country. Today, we could change prices in less than 10 minutes. So uh, online, I mean. So I think that's a big advantage. Interesting. Well, that's, that's uh, pretty impressive. Well, it's not just us, right? It's We're not the impressive people of that. I mean, Walmart does it. Amazon can do it. Tesco can do it. Uh, you know, they just changed. There's a self-service mechanism to go do this. Yeah. So uh, that that's a fundamental shift of retail, right? Mm -hmm. yep. yep, absolutely. You can react so much I mean, faster online. And one of the big advantages of FBA for, for sellers is that they control pricing and, and uh, they control inventory. Whereas if you're a first party seller, uh, so manufacturer selling to Amazon, you don't control pricing and you don't control inventory. So you lose levers, right? But in exchange for loss of those levers, you typically pay lower fees than, than seller does on FBA. Mm -hmm. and, and so, you know, there's a plus, there, you know, there's puts and takes on every relationship. And, you know, this is just another one of those puts, you know, that you're thinking, all right, well, what does pricing do? 
Well, when you can control pricing, what do you have? You know, in hindsight, it's 2020. Some places, maybe you would always want to be FBA if the pricing fluctuation is just out of control. You know, it just depends on the country and where you're at. Do you guys, uh, I forgot to ask this at the top, but do you guys do a lot of direct sales through your website or, or is this is pretty much all channel sales? Oh, we, we don't have a, we don't really have a D2C, um, which is direct to consumer. We do own a brand called Enjoy Life, which is a very good brand, direct to consumer, uh, has a really nice, robust business. Uh, that's a little different though, but um, th- I think your question is more specific to the the big kahuna, the big business, the the big makeup of of Mondelez, and the answer is they're not D to C. So for we don't sell like you know double stuff Oreos direct to consumer. Got it. One follow up question on that: I know um, a, a lot of CPGs have, are starting to experiment with direct to consumer, and like I, I think one of the common models is custom product. So I know, you know, you can do the custom M&M packs from, from Hershey, for right. example. And I want to say there was a pilot last quarter with uh, custom packaging for Oreos, wasn't there? Yeah, so um, we did do a, a packaging that you could kind of design, um, Oreo color filled. Uh, it wasn't a pilot. It was meant to be just um, a regular, you know, uh, product to cause excitement for our cons- consumers, and it surely did that. Uh, and so uh, we then expanded it to China. Uh, it was very successful in China. We re- ran it last month uh, in China. Again, not forever, just for a few days. Uh, did rather well. And so it's not a custom cookie. It's just some. It's just a custom packaging. Um, and so. You can if you could look up like Oreo color filled online and Google Images or something, you'd find it. You'd find what it was like. You can't buy them now, though, of course. Uh, and so we may or may not bring them back. I I I, um, I couldn't comment, but I can say that um, it was just another way to build brand you know brand loyalty and, and award consumers. Got it. Changing topics just slightly. One of the things that's interesting to me about your role is. Um, the category that you guys primarily play in grocery, you know, historically it hasn't been a big e-commerce category. So, you know, in North America, I think on average there's about, you know, 9% of retail sales are online, but grocery in North America is, is probably less than 1%. I know, you know, we've, we've talked on the show before in some other markets like the UK, it's quite a bit higher, like maybe 6%. Um, quite a bit, but you mentioned at the, onset of the show that you thought like really the future of e-commerce was food. So I guess I'm, I'm curious to uh, sort of hear your thoughts. Like, do you envision a day when we all stop going to the grocery store and we all get our, our, <laughs> our, our delivery deliveries home delivered? Or do you think it's, it's buy online yeah. pickup in store? Or how, how does that uh, play out for you? Okay. So the good news is that um, there's actual data that will demonstrate this. And so if you look at all the other categories, it doesn't matter what they are, sporting goods, it doesn't matter, books, uh, landscape, home and garden, they all started out slow, just like grocery. And all of a sudden, a hockey stick was formed. And this data uh, has been consistent across all the categories that Amazon has launched over the last decade. Uh, And... And sure enough, this will be uh, consistent for grocery. And how do I know this? Well, we're seeing the hockey stick form all around the world. So in Europe, this is happening in significant, significant ways. In France, uh, you're talking about double-digit buying online right now through uh, Leclerc and Auchan. And so you can watch the world function and you can watch humans interact with their phones and interact with websites. And um, sure enough, this will continue to spread and the hockey stick will form like all business does and grocery will also experience that hockey stick in the U.S. just like it's experiencing currently in France and currently in the U.K. as examples. Now, I'm sure everyone already knows that it exists greatly in Japan and China. Now, the question on the table is, so how does it exist? Well, 
first of all, people are going to still go to the grocery store. So uh, I'm not, that's, that's sort of crazy talk. They're going to go to the grocery store. They go to stores now. It's just the way that's people do like to get out of their house. So that's first. Second, though, there's going to be a whole multitude of people uh, as the generations continue to grow up like my children that it can going to continue to be buying online, getting everything online. And that generation will continue to leverage things such as fresh Instacart, uh, doesn't matter, prime now, et cetera, you know, delivery grocery. Um, and so I see that just growing. Um, what, what Kager, you know, I don't know. I mean, the estimates from the big research firms say 20% a year for, you know, our category is our estimated Kago over the next five years, 20% every year. I mean, is it right, wrong? It's probably close to being right because every other category has done the exact same thing over time. And that's exactly what's going on in Europe. And that's what happened in Asia. So I don't really see that being different here. Um, I think the biggest differentiating is our products are really very good for subscribe and save models, which is get on the list and stay on the list. And I, that's what we're seeing. We're seeing significant growth in snacking uh, across our brands for people that are subscribing to them and keeping keeping them in their house, in their pantry. And so uh, I would expect that to continue. So, yeah, um, food and fashion. Food is the consumable that's used every day, used up very fast, and people always need it again. And fashion changes eight times a year with the seasons. And so that's always used again. So yeah, food and fashion is the next frontier. There's always going to be room for stores for both of them, but there's going to be room online, significant room online in the billions of dollars uh, for food. And we have an ambition that we have announced to the street to be have one billion by 2020. Um, and so I can't comment uh, where we are for forward-looking statements, but I can tell you that uh, we continue to be impressed with our growth, and we're going to keep working really hard uh, and and grow our business as best we can. Nice. Uh, uh, so a question I spend some time thinking about is imagining that near future that you just painted where um, grocery e-commerce becomes popular. And you, you mentioned yourself there's a bunch of Mondelez products that fit really well in that subscribe and save model. The downside of that model and the downside with all the uh, or a significant portion of grocery going digital is I, I imagine that Mondelez also has a lot of unplanned purchase products, a lot of impulse products. So like specifically, I think you guys have a number of gum brands like Stride, if I'm not mistaken, is a is a Mondelez brand. What uh, if you're not on that list? Like how how do you drive you know how do we drive impulse sales digitally I guess is the love that yeah love that question so you know you have to th the way I think about it and the way I've been describing it is you have to think about impulse differently you know the way I tell everyone the story is it's a one screen world you're you're in front of your computer whatever's on the screen that's the world one screen world and I usually say a sentence like. Uh, she who wins the buy box wins the sale. So whoever is winning that screen or winning that buy box will win that sale. And I, and I find that these sites um, have many areas to drive impulse. They have in the U S they have lightning deals. They have best deals. They have ads that you can do if you chose to um, the, the really interesting part about it is that brands, big brands really matter online. And you see that even with Amazon where big brands can still win the search and win the share of search. And what happens is, in, in my mind, that as long as you're focused on the flywheel that I described earlier in the call <clears throat> and you're giving customers what they want um, and you have a seamless experience from offline to online on your brands, you can create uh, an impulse purchase. And, and so to prove this point, we look at the data. And what we've done in each market around the world is we've taken, let's call a Trident. And in, some in most cases, we built a, an assortment pack 
that's closer to about twelve or thirteen dollars, and they get a lot of Trident in the in the in the in the in the, in the, in the purchase. Um, and these are people that are, are adding it to the cart. They see the deal, or they see the ad, or they see the advertisement, right? And they add it to the cart. And what we have found is one of the biggest levers to driving impulse purchase is great content. And you may have heard me talk about this before in news, different news articles, but we leverage great content, I think, better than almost any anyone, by the way. I, I mean, I put our content up against any food company right now, and I'd say that where we can win on content, where the, the platform is existing for us to win, like in Amazon, for example, we win in spades, and that is driving tremendous impulse for us. As a matter of fact, here's some data. When we add improved content, let's just use Trident because you seem to like that one and, and it is a big impulse one just to give some real real meat to this. We improved our data, uh, our content uh, for Trident gum on Amazon in this particular use case. When we did it, our page view ranks went up uh, 6%. Our share search went up almost 13%. Our unique visitors index went up over 200%. Our ordered units, average ordered units grew to over 20%. And our sales lift in just 30 days was double digits. We have seen the same thing happen with other brands that we own. And, and so I'd say to you that... Yes, impulse, the way someone defines it, could be seen as a problem, or someone could turn that around and see what can we do to drive it as a solution. And I think that's what makes Mondelez so special in this space. We've taken a brand like Trident that, in all intents and purposes, the common mind would say, it's impulse, it's not going to sell online. And I have given you... Uh, five data points that are uh, completely, you know, tested with rigor that it's not true, that we will be very successful online. And uh, so we're pretty proud of that. And that's how we do it. Very exciting. Uh, just a clarification for our listeners. When you say improve that content, you're talking about things like better product photography and product descriptions and and, and recipes and lifestyle images and descriptions about the brand and the history of the brand and the, the, the spirit of the brand, the essence of the brand. And so if you go to like Amazon, I mean, we're using Amazon because this is a big conversation today, but uh, you can look up Oreo and you'll see some of our A-plus content. And you'll see uh, Oreo shakes and recipes and stuff like that. And that really resonates very well. Excellent. And I, I would like to uh, add that the Oreo shake is delicious. I have tried one. Uh, wow. Yeah, that's, that's if you, really, you haven't? I haven't. I've, I need to. I've never actually met anyone that hasn't had an Oreo milkshake. Wow. I've had a McFlurry with Oreos. I don't, is that the same thing? It's good enough. We'll take it. Okay. All right. Then maybe I have had one. Yeah, then we're in. That's a good one. <laughs> we're in. But, but, but okay. let the record show that Scott is a unique cohort. He owns an Amazon Fire phone and hasn't had an Oreo shake. <laughs> yeah, that, that there's is. three phones on the wild. That's this. I'm, I'm a cohort of one. Yeah. <laughs> um, speaking of Amazon, um, you know, I, I, I'm interested about your time when you were at Amazon. You were there during some some pretty interesting growth years. What were you in charge of? What was it like working there? Um, yeah. You know, just just give us a little flavor for your experience at Amazon, and you know, obviously don't don't go outside of any NDAs or any that kind of stuff. No, I, I wouldn't do that anyway. <laughs> All right. So, um, I love Amazon. Um, Amazon has taught me, uh, more than any other place I've ever worked at. And they even teach me today. I, I just am completely engrossed with the way they, um, think and about, uh, their, their methodologies for success. And that's all pretty well documented. So why don't I talk about things that maybe aren't so documented? When I, um, what I do there. So I started in fulfillment by Amazon FBA, 
Um, I obviously can't give all the numbers um, because they're not public, but whatever you read uh, on their 10K is, I'm sure, good for this conversation, Amazon's 10K. And and essentially, um, I wrote the three-year plans, and I wrote a lot of the what they call operation planning, and I did that for a couple of years. And while I was there, I noticed there was a big gap. Any item that is less than 10 ounces and small could not be shipped profitably. And as a result, FBA and and retail did not have these items for sale. As a matter of fact, you may know what they did. They started the add-on program. Mm -hmm. And the add-on program is is a controversial program at best because you can't pay for shipping. If you want the item, you have to have a minimum cart. Mm -hmm. And so that is, goes, flies against customer choice, right? But there's a good reason for it. You know, you don't want to have customers pay $5 for a $3 item. It's just a crappy customer experience. Um, And consequently, I remember the first time I presented to uh, Bezos, we presented an option. I, I, as I sit here, I, I actually, I don't remember the exact name of the program. Oh, oh, I remember now single item shipping. And it was an idea that says you can pay for shipping and here's how it would work. And, you know, needless to say, he didn't like that idea. Um, and, and, and so he said, you know, go back to the drawing board. And his, it was the, the biggest moment for me when he said, he looked right at me, he said, you need to focus on cost. You, you, you can't charge customers out of this. You need to invent. You need to create. You need to create the impossible magic. How do you ship something that weighs less than ten ounces to customers for free around the world? That's what you need to do. If you could solve that, come back. Until you could solve that, don't come back. So this went on. Um, of course, I didn't learn my lesson, and we went back a couple of times, and every time we were wrong, but. The last time we went back, um, I remember was a defining moment. It was a small and light program. That was the name of it. I wrote the paper. It was a 39-page paper, six pages written, and like, you know, 33 pages of appendices, you know, charts and this. And um, we presented it, and uh, we brought it in, and for an hour and 25 minutes, the room was quiet as they read through this very lengthy document. For those of you who don't know, there's no PowerPoint at Amazon. Uh, there's these six pages that you write with many appendices. And uh, at the end, uh, I remember the comment was, you know, I'm skeptical. And a 30-minute debate pursued about the fixed cost, the variable cost, the trans cost, the patents that would be involved in this, the technology that that would be required, the infrastructure. And at the end, they said, okay, this is good. You guys, it's approved. Go ahead. (laughs) And we left that room, uh, did not celebrate more than an hour before we were back in, in uh, in the business there, the office. Um, creating the model. Uh, we have uh, you know, over 10 patents on this. Uh, we have custom technology, custom software, custom data architecture. Uh, we reduced fixed variable and transportation costs. This program was launched globally while I was there, obviously under me. Um, we have shipped tens of millions of items all profitably, by the way, every one of them, by the way. And customers are getting this stuff for free shipped to them. Prime customers and non-prime customers. We do not discriminate. <laughs> and this is an unbelievable, successful program. Um, and so I'm pretty, uh, pretty psyched about it. Um, I love that my team, many of them are still on it, and um, it was one of the greatest inventions. Now, uh, will it end all of add-on? Of course not, because add-on is not just about transportation. 
It's also about the location of items and where they are. It's about the supply chain in general. It's about the weight of different items. And so without getting into a whole dissertation um, on all that, because that's another whole phone call, that's what I did at Amazon. Now, interestingly, also at Amazon, um, there's an award that's given out uh, by Jeff himself called the Just Do It Award. And it's not given all the time, but it's given to folks who really do something pretty special. And and I, I'm not saying that what we did was special. I'm just saying that uh, they thought that we were we were we were going to get the award, and we didn't get it for the small light program. Interestingly, uh, we got the award for uh, there's a business that Amazon had called Quitsy, uh, Diapers.com. Some of you know about it, but they have other websites. And um, I worked uh, invented with two other people how to create a supply chain that can make all their uh, fulfillment centers prime eligible. So essentially we took tens of millions of items that were not prime eligible and not on Amazon from the manufacturer and made Quitsy a third party seller in FBA and made them prime eligible. And by doing that, uh, FBA, uh, Quitsy became free cash flow positive, uh, created a much big, bigger business for them and as a result, we got the Just Do It Award. So that was pretty cool. Uh, Jeff, um, I remember, not only do I remember when Jeff told me about the about the Small Light Program, but I also remember uh, with Quitsy shaking his hand. And, and I remember him saying right on the stage, it was like, I mean, I have pictures of it. And I remember when he's right there, and he just stood there and he said, he said, you know, what you did for customers in giving them free shipping of millions of items, um, you don't know it, but you're making history every day. And it was just a, a, a very motivating and telling moment. And so um, that's some interesting things I've done there. You know, not every day is a holiday over there, right? There's been plenty of papers that I wrote that were not good. Plenty of P&Ls that were questionable. Those are called profit and loss statements, excuse me, that were questionable when I'm trying to figure out how to make money on a business. Not, of course, questionable to Wall Street, questionable to how to make money on a business that you're trying to invent. Um, but overall, the learning was huge. And um, I really enjoyed all the leaders that taught me everything there. I, I feel very lucky to have worked there. Awesome. Um, so I always love a good Jeff Bezos story. It sounds like, you know, there's the Steve Jobs stories where if you propose something they didn't like, he would just dress you down. It seem, seems like Jeff was more motivational and saying, you know, hey, this isn't, you know, go invent something kind of a thing. Well, I'm sure other people have stories and you can read the well documented of people not being nice, I guess. But um, that wasn't my experience. And um, I, I, I don't actually understand a lot of that, uh, to be honest. Like, Jeff has these people in the room. He's reading these papers. You know, he'll be frustrated, I'm sure. And I'm sure he has been. And I'm sure people can tell you stories about it. But when it comes to invention, invention is hard. And it requires iteration. And it, it is about failure. And, mm -hmm. you know, he is someone that, that when he says failure is okay, we're going to learn from it and we're going to keep going. Uh, I'm not sure the exact words he says about that, but you can watch videos about what he talks about with invention. That's what he says. That's what he believes. And, and, you know, small lights, a perfect, perfect example, you know, ripping people apart would not be very productive, right? So telling them what's wrong with the business and why your model is not good. That's good. You're allowed to get feedback like that. Mm -hmm. Um, telling where to improve, that's good. Um, but no, I've never actually experienced him, in, you know, just taking things and, you know, going nuts. I've never experienced that. Now, he probably has done that with others, and I've read stories about it and heard stories about it. Um, but, you know, I don't know the context of that, and neither does anyone else, right? Like, you don't, we don't know what the paper said. We don't know if the numbers were wrong, I mean, what if someone gave him a paper and all the, all the data was wrong, then obviously that would be, that's bad. Like that's just bad performance. Right. So yeah, that's a, that's a different issue. I think if you could, if you perform well, like the team I was on did, 
and you had good business case and you were rational and your numbers were right, now, now you could have a business conversation. Now you could talk about invention. But if you go in there and your P&Ls are messed up and you just don't have the customer first in your mind, then, you know, then I think, uh, you know, yeah. then, then I think that maybe you should be getting beaten up, if you know what I mean. Yeah. The, um, so I, I spend a lot of time thinking about Amazon and working with them. I, I sometimes think they're unstoppable. Do you, do you think, and this is kind of a 30,000 foot you know, kind of question, not in the context of Mondelez or anything like that, but as, as a digital leader, do you think, you know, someone steps up and slows down Amazon's ascendancy or do you think they're going to be the dominant player for the next 20 years? No way. Someone's going to, someone's going to come in and bother them. I tell you, there is no way that, that they will not be disrupted themselves. I, I remember when I was uh, selling to Walmart and everyone said Walmart was the greatest and no one will ever disrupt them. It will never happen. I remember it was 1998 and boy, were they wrong. And, you know, even, even Jeff says uh, all the time in meetings uh, at, you know, they have these meetings. I forget how often in front of all the, the, the people and they go to key arena in Seattle and he does a big presentation. And even he says, you know, if you don't keep on inventing and focusing on the customer, someone's going to disrupt you. Um, and, you know, who's it going to be? Hey, if I knew that, then I think I'd be a billionaire. But, you know, I don't know that. But I can tell you that I am not naive to the fact, and I don't believe any executive at Amazon is naive to the fact that if they don't always stay on top of their game, that they won't be disrupted themselves. No business lasts forever, period. And remember that this is a very U.S.-centric call right now. But outside the U.S., Amazon is not Amazon in the U.S. And if you think about it, in China, they, are, they basically don't exist. Mm -hmm. In Europe, yeah, they're big. But so is Tesco, okay? So, so so is Morrison's. So so, you know, in France they're not big at all. In in Spain not big at all. Uh, in Japan they're just as big as Rakuten. In India they're not bigger than Big Basket or Flipkart, or you know Snapdeal. So, you know. I think there's a very important perspective that has to be laid out. And um, I would say that you should always look around the corner, always look around corners because there is an inventor out there and he, he may be your seven-year-old right now in your house playing with his Pokemon Go today. And that seven-year-old may be the Amazon disruptor, you know, 12, 15 years from now. You just, you know, you don't know. And I, I would think that anyone who thinks they can't be disrupted is is totally naive. I think I've heard a couple of interviews where where Jeff had a great line that like obviously, you know, no empire has successfully predicted their own demise. The most you can hope for is to be dead when it happens. Yeah, I that I I think I've heard that too. Um you know I, I, that makes sense. I, 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 we see this all the time. I mean, history has a tendency to repeat itself. And, and in this case, I, 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 as myself, I focus more on the business of e-commerce and the business of the customer than the exact retailer. So that's why I try to have very strong relationships with um, others besides Amazon. And I think we do. Uh, and I think that that way you could sort of understand it. We also do a lot with um, startups. We tend to be very encouraging of startups and new business models and ventures and to see what they're like. And I follow them very, very closely. Uh, so, you know, I remember as a kid, uh, people would buy taxi medallions and they thought that they'd be multimillionaires if they owned medallions forever. And now medallions are worthless as Uber has destroyed it.
So it just happens fast and you don't know where it will be or what will happen, but it could happen. And that's, that's my co- sort of comments about Amazon and, um, and about Mondelez. And, you know, I, I, w- I will say this, uh, Mondelez is doing a lot of things right. And they seem to really be, and, and remember, this is someone joining seven months, eight, oh, no, no, eight months now. And they seem to really be uh, committed to e-commerce. And sometimes, you know, that commitment is really what you need. And I, and I would say that one of the best parts about working there is uh, their leadership is committed to the e-commerce models. Uh, they understand the future and they're willing to learn and invent. And so um, I see that glimmer there and I think it's going to be a, a great, a great future. Neil, that is terrific. Um, this will come as no surprise to our listeners, but it has happened again. We've spent a perfectly good hour of the listeners' time. Uh, so we very much appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk with us tonight and share your insights with our listeners. As a reminder for the listeners, uh, feel free to leave your feedback and write us a review on iTunes or continue the dialogue on our Facebook page. So with that, I will wish everyone a happy commercing. Thanks, Neil. We really appreciate you doing this. I really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot to everybody. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes and please leave a review. 